Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network. This is PNN. My name is Brooke Hines. And tonight we have Isha Krishnaswarmi and Janine Moloff together. And uh, we will be talking to them in just a few minutes. Uh, I want to fill you guys in on some stuff that is going on behind the scenes. We are expanding here at um at a progressive news network uh we're getting a little too big for britches i think where there's just uh too much going on and um we uh we uh we need two parts we need two parts for tonight's episode so uh we've got Part one and part two. Part one is Isha and Janine. And then part two is me and uh, Kardik Krishnire and uh, a fabulous chat that I had with Chris Richards on libertarian socialism. I just had too much stuff. This ever happened to you? Just too much good stuff to uh, to, to give to everybody uh, for um, for one night. Uh, and uh, so let's just do let's just do more. Uh, we also have uh, another very interesting piece coming up very soon. That is a little investigation that I've done with some other friends uh, that uh, have gotten together with me on social media. We have we have concerns. There are things that we were very concerned about. And one of the things that we are very concerned about have to do with, uh, well, you know, how how things actually work uh, with social media. So we, uh, we've been doing a little bit of digging. We're uh, going to bring that information to you very soon. So uh, hang tight for that. And uh, in the meantime, uh, enjoy this. I will be right back with uh, Ishna and uh, Isha and Janine and the rest of the show. I've got some news bits for you. So uh, just uh, hold tight. Hello and welcome to Progressive News Network, PNN, for Sunday, March 2021. So much going on this week. There was so much going on this week and last week that uh, I have a bumper prop of stories for you. So we're doing we're doing two episodes this week. We've got a bonus episode. It's a big damn week. Okay, so let me tell you what let me tell you what we're doing here. We've got uh of course we got Janine Mollis 
as you know, with the justice report. However, this week's justice report is a, is a extra special and extra in depth. And she's continuing on the investigation of not dying for Wall Street. And this week we're looking at monopolization within the vaccine uh, production and, and market. And so she's going to go in depth in that. And I also have in this episode of PNN, I have Isha Krishnaswamy, who is uh, just a, a, an amazing presence on Twitter, good friend. Uh, and uh, it was just time. We it, you got to bring Isha on to talk from time to time. Now, she's got a new thing she's doing. It's Sundays with Lennon on YouTube, which I said wrong during the segment. It is Sundays with Lennon, not Saturdays. Uh, I'll, put, I'll put links in the show notes. And uh, she's still doing Historically, which is, uh, you know, continues to blow my mind. Uh, go over to SoundCloud, uh, search on Historically. I'll also put the link to it. But uh, the... A catalog of important interviews that she has there is just astounding. I mean, it's not, it's not just, uh, oh, this is kind of interesting and this is kind of fun. These are all, everyone is important and everyone is, uh, every one of her pieces, these interviews and with the team that she works with, with historically, they're uh, answering and participating in the discourse. It's, it's not just there for no reason. I mean, it's just you gotta go check it out. You really do this for yourself. And uh, we have a little bit of news too that I will get to in a moment. On the bonus episode, I just want to give you a heads up on this. On the bonus episode, I I have Cardiff Krishnayer and myself in a conversation about mostly about the stimulus package and. Uh, Kirsten Cinema, Kristen Cinema, however you want to say her, with her uh, performance on voting down $15 minimum wage. So we wanted to talk about that. We wanted to put it in a context. So I've got that, and I've also got a fantastic conversation with Chris Richards, who is, again, one of these people that if you're not following on Twitter, you need to. I will also put uh, handles down or uh, uh, at whatever you want to call them, down should note so that you can get hold of everybody. Uh, neither of these episodes are are primary to the other. It's just I'm, I'm breaking apart because we have just so much stuff. We have a backlog of stuff. And uh, and not only that, but, but we have so much talented uh, people commenting on things that uh, – and, and so much going on that uh, it just takes more to get it out. And so as it takes more space to get it out, you know, we've, we've been expanding. We're now uh, distributing through anchor, which then distributes to six other platforms. So, you know, we've got the talk radio, which is on iTunes. So now we've, we've Spotify and iHeartRadio and all of these are uh, ways of catching PNN out there, and uh, it just occurs to me that uh, that we're we're missing a critical piece. critical piece is that every week the show notes get longer and longer because there's very serious important stuff that I want to get down there with citations and stuff, and so what I'm going to start doing is uh, distributing out through Substack. 
so that uh, so that you've got a written piece that's a official little post that goes with um, the shows and the segments and provides your citations right there. You can write in your mailbox. So we will be uh, pushing that out probably this week. Uh, you might even get this particular episode through the Substack. But I just wanted to give you a heads up for that. And if you're not familiar with Substack, uh, another reason why I want to get you, your attention pointed in that direction is that you ought to be uh, familiar with Substack because so many amazing writers and reporters are on Substack. And it's just starting to be the place to go to uh, to follow the the people doing reportage that is uh that is important and relevant so uh it's also very handy it gives you a reason to go look in your email i've famously got over a hundred thousand spam emails in my email folder and so I, i'm a big fan of the vip box um it is what it is you know we live in an age and and because of the work that i do I, i'm on every kind of political mailing list that there is so I just, I get a ton. And let me tell you, if you're sending me political emails and um, looking at you, D-Trip, uh, uh, I see you. I might not open them, but I see you. I see you there. You know, I, I, I scrub across and stuff. I see what you guys are doing. And uh, and uh, mostly it's not cool. <laughs> mostly it's like, you know, the DNC and D-Trip, they're, they're out there asking for money. I saw a tweet today that just really spoke to me. They're, they're, they're fundraising right now. They're fundraising. We're getting emails and mailboxes and emailboxes. And uh, the minimum, of course, that they want you to donate through ActBlue is usually like $25. And someone pointed out that that's, you know, over three hours of work uh, at, at minimum wage. I mean, does it seem like the Democrats right now are doing enough work to merit three and a half some hours my work at minimum wage? I don't think so. I don't think so. Listen, guys, go ahead and make that minimum wage happen, and maybe you'll start seeing some uh, fundraising come your way from regular folks. I guess until then, you can just continue to take money from from the Koch brothers or whoever whoever it is that is uh, funding this, this stuff that's that's going on right now in D.C. Okay, enough of that. We are going to turn towards a little bit of news just for a moment, and then we are be back with uh, Isha and Janine. We'll be right back. Okay, we're going to keep simple this week. Uh, I think everybody knows they're all about the uh, um, cinema situation, about the minimum wage stuff. I want to hit some some stories that uh, might have fallen through the cracks because a, a couple of these have just made my eyes bug out. And this is this is one that came through Ian Welsh's uh, amazing, wonderful uh, uh, substack he does or newsletter. I'll put in, uh, the link in the notes and all that sort of thing. Um, and Welsh has been blogging, been around since that first wave blogging, and somebody whose writing I've always appreciated. He does a, a roundup of news in the week that is it, 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 it's so valuable 
is, is really awesome. So I, I urge you to uh, take a look at that. Now, this article that he's, that he's uh, shared, this is from last week's, actually. Uh, Austerity and rise of the Nazi Party. So would you expect there to be correlation between austerity economics and the rise of the Nazi Party? I mean, it's not something that I had actually thought about before, but um, like, because I'm not a scholar of the history of economy at that time at all, this isn't my my uh, bailiwick at all. However, it is other people's, and oh my God, there's some things about it. So this is a Economic History Association published online by Cambridge University Press on the 11th of January 2020. Uh, the study found a link between fiscal austerity and Nazi electoral success. Voting data from a thousand districts in hundred cities for four elections between 1930 and 1933 showed that areas more affected by austerity, spending cuts and tax increases, had relatively higher vote shares for the Nazi party. What do you know? I mean, this is exactly, this is exactly what, what we've been telling, uh, you know, screaming from the rooftops and out in the streets. This is what we've been saying about what's going on with the Democratic Party and what has been going on with the Democratic Party for a very long time, you know, and now we have a, a very austerity friendly president as a response to what a lot of people say was a a, a fascist and or Nazi-ish uh, uh Trumpism is is not exactly Nazism. It's it's a different variety. Uh, similar church, you know, maybe not different pew. Maybe they're standing room only in the back or something. It's not the same thing as what I'm trying to say here. However, it's close enough, and and it's the it's the flavor. It's the American brand that is emerging as this kind of Trumpism. And uh, a lot of progressives, a lot of and a lot of socialists are saying, "Hey, look, you know what you're doing is actually creating this mess out there. You're actually creating these people that are now, uh, you know, threatening us." And here is a paper that actually finds a real link with that. So, continuing on, we also find that the localities with relatively high austerity experienced relatively high suffering measures rates and these areas elect to vote for the Nazi party. So what they're saying there is that where there was more suffering, there was also uh, more propensity to embrace the Nazis. So this is pretty simple, guys. If you want to avoid the next Trump, and yes, I'm a broken record at this point, if you want to not have a Trump 2024, 2028, uh, maybe, maybe Jamie, Let's not be um, austerians. How about that? Uh, now, a lot of people are saying right now that we can expect and we should expect to see a $15 minimum wage raise tied to austerity measures uh, regarding Social Security. So, uh, look out for that. Could be a you know a Simpson Bowles part two. Remember that Joe Biden was part of the uh, not just part of he was a director of Simpson Bowles, and he didn't get the cuts that he wanted back then. And uh, you know, 
Uh, I keep reminding y'all, I'm I am right there. I am I'm almost getting ready this year. I will be getting senior discounts at uh, at least at my dispensary, which I'm very excited about. I don't know about any place else. There really isn't anything else I do. But you know, I don't think people understand how precarious uh, Generation X is. So I'm an older Generation X, and uh, people behind me, uh, there's a, a, a an increase in people who had to take out student loans to go to college. And I've talked about on the show how I've got friends who are, you know, still paying for students. It looks like they might not even pay them before they die. Like that's how bad it is. Uh, and so if we see, if we see austerity measures coming uh, with regard to what gets called entitlement programs, you know, and, and, you know, we don't like the word entitlement, but the word entitlement is there because we are entitled to them because we fucking gave them. Like that's entitlement and it's everybody's. I mean, you know, uh, you know, raise, raise the cap, do all that, but don't come after money. And it's this, I tweeted something earlier today uh, in response to a question somebody wrote. Somebody said, uh, this is Becca, by the way, Becca 2400 says, is there any good left in this world? Part of me wants to save the planet. Then I see another thing. And that makes me think a giant meteor is more humane. And I said, uh, uh, yes, I, I, I did this in the, in the form of a, of an equation. A, yes, there is good. B, no, we won't be able to save the world. Therefore, C, have all the sex. D, smoke all the weed. E, spend all the money. F, eat dessert first. And G, die in debt. Now, in response to D, die in debt, uh, someone named Waldo Jeffers responded to me, and this is haunting. This is absolutely haunting. He says, I worked 50 plus hours per week for 40 years, hoping for a little house to retire in. I have nothing again. This is the only answer that makes any sense to my response there. Have all the sex, smoke all the weed. Also, on the austerity situation, uh, Jackson, Mississippi is in the third week without water. Okay, now we know about the uh, water situation in uh, in Flint, Michigan. This is a uh, a whole other situation in Jackson, Mississippi. So, sticking with the Ian Welsh thing, I would I, I want to share with you uh, something he wrote on this. He says, "So another mess. Even before this, much of the water was unsafe and probably lead poison. And yet there are no high level talks between the state and the city." which is it's the state capital freaking Jackson, Mississippi is the state capital. They have no water and there, there are no talks with the state to, to fix that problem. He says American undevelopment continues. What is also striking is the complete incapability and unwillingness to handle problems in the third week of having no water because of this infrastructure situation. There's no talks between the city and the state. And again, that's the capital. Uh, do you hear about this on the national news? Have you seen this on MSNBC? Have you seen it on CNN? Has it been covered in the Washington Post or in the pages of the New York Times? I don't think so. The only place that I see it is talked about is uh, on social media. You know, well, and this could be one of the reasons why, you know, they they want to censor social media so much is that you know we we get to talk about stuff that hasn't been you know uh, given the uh, okay by. Uh, the, the the gatekeepers, 
you know, they, they wouldn't want you to know how they're actually doing out there. Ian Welsh continues, he says, um, the level of malign indifference displayed by elected officials and senior bureaucrats is mind-boggling. They do nothing to help but make sure to keep funneling money to the rich people who own them. You can't count on the U.S. or most state governments. They aren't interested in the basic duties of governing, like making sure power and water keep flowing. The dikes are built, the forests are managed, and so on. That means you have to count on yourself and whatever community you can find or create, which is trustworthy. Now, think back to what I was just saying about the uh, austerity and, and the Nazi party and reflect on how this little thing that he says right here, it, 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 it is that kernel. It's, that, it, it's a kernel of, of Trumpism. This is the kind of thing that the, the Trumpians are, are animated by which is that self-reliance, that, that there's no one out there coming to help and that they're going to, you know, these guys, of course, have all kinds of fantasies, prepper fantasies and, you know, provide for the family by hunting large hoofed animals or whatever it is. But, you know, in a way, they're right. And, I mean, especially if you lived in, in Jackson, Mississippi, I mean, you would you would want your own well. You would want access to water that isn't attached to city infrastructure because there is no city infrastructure. Ian continues, at the least, build some reserves, but at the most, see what you can do to cut your vulnerabilities. He says, I know it's hard, maybe even mostly impossible if you're poor, but do what you can. This sort of event is likely to become more common until this political order is replaced, and it's not clear when that will happen or if it will be replaced by something better. And I wish I could put that on a billboard. I wish I could just shout that from roof- rooftops, you know, and I can't. So I'm just going to you know, put it into this microphone and send it out like this. This is all I can do. He's so right. He is absolutely so right. And, you know, something that I've been seeing on the left a lot more is uh, embracing Second Amendment stuff. There is a lot more, you know, there's a socialist gun club. There's uh, popping up all over the place. People understand that we are being abandoned. We can see it, you know. It it, it is not gone unnoticed that, uh, that, that we are truly fucked out here. Um, so I actually appreciate this is, this is one of the things that I read this week that I was just like, thank you. Thank you for, you know, the reality check there, because it's not often that I see somebody else saying the thing that isn't being said. You know what I mean? We got a lot of stuff that we talk about. We got a lot of stuff that it's okay to talk about and that you're encouraged to talk about, you know, kind of like that cinema, Kristen cinema situation with her, you know, thumbs down curtsy. You had to talk about that. What we don't talk about is the water in Flint or the, or the water in Jackson, Mississippi, or the, the uh, broken uh, uh, power grid and energy systems in California and Texas and, and pretty much all over the U S like we are we are one uh solar flare or you know unexpected ice storm away from serious disaster and I, you know what I mean, let me just tie this all together let me put a bow on this this is part of the reason 
going back to that uh, you know whole thing that Rat, Rachel Maddow was was pushing there that the Russians were going to take down our power grid. Part of the reason I found that so offensive was that the oligarchs are actually doing that right now. The oligarchs have been taking down our power grid, our water systems, our entire infrastructure. Nestle was said, there's famously Nestle said that uh, uh, there, there should be no right to, to water. There should be no public right to water, you know, because they're buying up all the water and just did another uh, deal here in Florida for, uh, you know, our precious springs. No right to water, no, no right to power, no right to infrastructure. They're cutting us loose, you know. They're cutting us loose, and they're actually literally building spaceships to go to Mars. How much clearer can it be that we're on our own? So we're on our own, but I'll tell you who's not on their own. The people who get all the help in the world are the corporations and the wealthy. Now, we know this, uh, but the more you dig into that and the more you appreciate it and, and, and you start uh, – connecting some dots, uh, it starts to help you make sense of the world. So, you know, the, the, the Kirsten Cinema thing this, this week, you know, what the hell, let's just go ahead and talk about this. Kirsten Cinema, you know, started out life, political life, as a, a Green Party icon. You know, she's got this, uh, you know, bisexual identity. She was supposed to be, uh, you know, someone who was driven to uh, – go and do lawmaking in order to help underprivileged people. Uh, I hate that word, by the way. Uh, it, but, but then she, according to David Sirota and Andrew Perez at a, uh, over at the Daily Poster, uh, they have this great piece uh, in their substack called Rise of a Swamp Monster. And uh, it tells the tale of how she went from being, you know, a, a regular human feeling human being into a, a swamp monster. And I, I think you got to stop for a moment and appreciate the fact that, uh, that the vocabulary of swamp actually comes from, from Trump, you know. And, and so I think that you need to understand, we all need to appreciate uh, part of the reason why Trump rose to power is that uh, he was able to 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 point at things that that the liberal and neoliberal order has done for years and years. The way that they get rich is able to point at that and and have a, a a valid argument for his way of doing things as opposed to the uh, liberal and neoliberal order. So, Kristen Cinema is a great example of this. Um, you know, after she was elected, she, it, it, all of this is, is, you know, she was supposed to be the darling, you know, at the left and all this and just got into Congress and really quickly, you know, it was it, it was like the, the corporatists, uh, the, the corporate lobbyists came along with, you know, whatever it is that they hand out to people, whether it's coke or money or, you know, hookers, whatever it is. And she was hooked. She was immediately hooked. Uh, she voted to help corporate lobbyists uh, harm lots of those marginalized people she claimed she got into politics to protect. She broke with her party to help the financial industry roll back weak regulations passed in the wake of the financial crisis. She became one of the top recipients of campaign cash from predatory lenders and 
helped Republicans advance legislation to protect those lenders. All in all, Grissom Cinema cast votes with Trump uh, priorities half the time, according to an analysis by 538. Her elevation to the Senate Banking Committee was considered a big win for Wall Street. Last summer, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce awarded Cinema their, quote, inaugural Abraham Lincoln Leadership for America Award and the Jefferson Hamilton Award for Bipartisanship. All of this culminated in the COVID-19 relief bill where she has played a particular pernicious role. Cinema, who told uh, um, PSN that she was a social worker from in, in an immigrant and refugee committee at yeah, so she's she's cast herself as this, you know, kind of uh, white savior kind of person and then got into Congress and turned right around and, uh, you know, gave the big thumbs down to uh, to a increase in the minimum wage that still puts workers behind where where we need to be. Grissom Cinema for, for everybody, I mean, for F- Floridians, too, keep an eye on, you know, these icons in your local and state uh, political arena you know i mean can you imagine anna escamani becoming kristen cinema i certainly hope not can you imagine uh nikki freed becoming this kind of person yeah i can totally imagine that she actually is a lobbyist uh, uh i i can also imagine uh, uh andrew gillen becoming this this kind of person because you saw him transform into this kind of person on the campaign trail before he was before the, anyone you know, was even casting votes for him. Uh, he got four million dollars uh, from so-called progressive groups, you know, from from the jo- George Soros kind of you know the people who are who are maligned for being uh, aligned with George Soros. Took four million dollars from them and the very next day renounced Medicare for all. Not that a governor, you know, has would would have any, you know, to anything really to say about Medicare for all, but it was very important for him to renounce that super quickly, right after he got that four million dollar infusion of cash. So let's just tie a bow on this. Let's just, uh, you, you know, I'm. I'm not going to hop up and down on the cinema thing. I think it's important to understand where she came from. I think it's important to apply that lesson to progressives as they are coming up and leftists as they are coming up through the system because nobody is an angel and everybody is corruptible. And this is exact. This is clearly what, what happened here. She just started taking the, the sweet, sweet lobbyist, you know, sugar right there. I'm going to, I'm going to end this here. I'm going to say, I want to say this. One of the things that keeps me going day from day to day is working with people, amazing people who are uh, running for office and who are, you know, people like myself who are helping people run for office and who are really are getting in it for all the right reasons, you know, uh, I, when my candidates get elected, it's like, it's almost like sending your kid off to college or something. It's like, well, you know, make, make good decisions, you know, like there's not much you can do. You just got to watch and hope that they stay the person that they were when, when they were running as a candidate. 
nobody I know, <laughs> except for maybe Nikki Freed, nobody I know actually starts out in life or Andrew Gillum uh, and, uh, uh, you, you know, just thinks that that the cool thing to do is is to side with the lobbyists on stuff nobody starts out like that and at least they don't market themselves like that they don't brand themselves like that they're very careful not to brand themselves like that because we all know what that means that's just legal bribery it's legal corruption um but anyway we do our best right we do our best and and we hope that the people who we elect and we get elected, we hope that, that they do their best. And we also hope that more better people enter into the conversation and enter into uh, the, the work of lawmaking so that so there's not just six members of the squad. You know, we need 12 members of the squad. We need 24. We need 48. We need, you know, 144. We need as much squad as we can possibly get because we've got to push out these swamp monsters. It's time. Okay. It's also time to move on and let's get to uh, Isha Krishnaswamy joining us for part one of a very fun discussion. And I hope you enjoy this. And I want to welcome back Isha Krishnaswamy. I'm so glad to have her with Progressive News Network this week. Isha is the proprietor of Historically Substack and Historically on uh, SoundCloud. And I believe you can find that on just about any podcatcher. But if you subscribe to Historically, you also get her written work, which I think is indispensable. So I really can't uh, recommend Historically enough. Uh, it's, it's just fabulous. Also, she started a new YouTube uh, series called Saturdays with Lennon, and I will uh, link both of these in the show notes so that you can find them quickly. But I wanted to bring Isha on, uh, number one, because it's just been way too long. But um, number two, there's just a couple of things that have been on my mind that really, I think, require uh, Isha's uh, viewpoint on. And one of those is that I think it's remarkable here in 2021 that we're finally getting some reasonable critiques of capitalism and we're getting uh, uh, people talking about socialism and communism in a way that uh, hasn't been allowed before or hasn't been uh, accepted before. And I think that this is uh, due to uh, the way that the economy has crushed people under its feet, the way that um, unregulated capitalism has been allowed to feed off of people, you know, feed off of student debt, feed off of medical debt, uh, you, uh, take people's houses away during the crash, so on and so forth. And so I think that if you were going to have a discussion about these types of things, the person that I want to talk to is Isha Krishnaswamy. So welcome. And I wanted to get your thoughts right off the bat on uh, why you think there is a, you know, such a 
a swell of new interest or just basically interest in, uh, you know, the writings of Marx and Lenin and Engels and all of these people. Uh, what do you think is going on here? Because this is much more than a, an intellectual pursuit. There is something much more material that seems to be uh, driving this, this interest. Yes. Uh, for lack of a, the very first thing um, Engels and Marx did was analyze capitalism and what's wrong with capitalism. And we've had, uh, God knows, maybe 40 years, like when Ronald Reagan took that wrecking ball, we've had like 40, 50 years now of neoliberalism and uh, and they've taken a wrecking ball to every single uh, every single support network, if we could call it that, that people had in America. Um, and so I think the 2008 crash affected a certain kind of people who are, A, educated in liberal arts, and they expected things to be like it was in the 90s, where they could go, uh, uh, surf on the dot-com boom. But then the economy crashed, and now they're 35 and living with their parents. And that is a very, it's hard to explain to many people. Like, I guess a lot of people are very traumatized by the 2008 crash who are millennials that, and people don't even realize how traumatized they are. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think that people, I think that there's trauma that people have been experiencing in private. And that's the, that's the trauma of, acquiring student debt and the trauma of acquiring medical debt. And as young people, you know, we get out of school and we've got 30, 40, you know, hundred thousand dollars in student loans, whatever it is. And it's impossible to, as a young person to imagine yourself getting to a place where you can start a family, where you can buy a house, where you can do anything that you're supposed to do as an adult with that kind of debt hanging over you. Yeah, millennials are like perpetual teenagers in that um, many are living at home, many are dealing with the uh, sporadic employment, uh, the uh, gig economy, which is just a, a, I don't even, it's some ghastly dystopian nightmare. And they're realizing that maybe the propaganda was wrong. And maybe even if you work as hard as you can, you're still headed to nowhere. And so they, they've been seeking other sources, I guess. Um, and other, uh, they've been rejecting popular propaganda and looking towards their, looking at, looking at a, a better theory or a better explanation that can explain their circumstances in a more coherent way. Now, what do you think? Uh, what do you think the better theory or the more, more coherent narrative is for, um, you know, people, people who are experiencing this, this kind of uh, uh, material distress that, you know, it started with Gen X and, and, and it's just gotten progressively worse. Like I'm a, I think, I think you would call me an older Gen X and I have plenty of student loans, but I know I wasn't, uh, not everyone around me who went to school had to take on the debt that I had to take on to get a degree. So it's just the the uh, 
if you look at a graph, so many more people have had to take on debt and tuition's gotten so much worse. What do you think is, what do you tell people in terms of uh, what kinds of history to look at or what kinds of theory to look at in terms of uh, uh, buttressing yourself or, or steadying yourself against this uh, uh, place we find ourselves? I call it, I've coined this new term. I call it American czarism. Um, like the czar, T-S-A-R, czar. Because what people don't, uh, so let me think about this. I call it American czarism because a lot of, when you're, okay. So when you're in an autocracy where it's hereditary rule about there was this um, Middle Eastern philosopher who said like after about three or four generations, they're going to get so distant from the people that they're going to get overthrown. And we have that same exact phenomenon, but it isn't out in the open in that there's no czar. We have a president, but for all practical purposes, he's probably more powerful than the czar ever was. And they are equally removed from people's sufferings And so there's all the trappings of the autocracy without the official autocracy is what I'd say. So I would look at any decaying empire, Tsarist Russia, uh, Kaiser's Germany, the Austria-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Spain before the Civil War, and all of them have the same trappings of a ruling class that is so distant from their people, not their people, from the people. And one thing that I've noticed, at least with both um, the Kaiser's Germany and Tsarist Russia, is that as income inequality got worse and worse, neither of them actually ended up redistributing wealth, but instead they kept on piling on the police. The czar had this um, really insane is not the right word, really hyperactive network of spies uh, everywhere. The Kaiser did that too, as the empire kept on crumbling. And we are doing that too. Um, They keep, the surveillance has increased but the simpler solution has not. And if you think of uh, uh, the news as history's first draft, it, w- what you were just talking about to me is where my sense of urgency comes from. Because when I look at the news and I look around and I recognize that we are in a decaying empire and, and because I wasn't a history major and I don't have the, um, the, the breadth of knowledge that... Uh, I'm that, not also not a history major. So I just oh, picked it up. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, uh, that's surprising. Uh, so uh, having this feeling about us being in this... In, 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 some people call it late, late capitalism. I think the idea of decaying in empire is is very salient. When you're looking at the news and you're seeing all of this, all of this go on, 
that's where the sense of urgency comes to for me because uh, I don't think I don't think people most people aren't thinking this deeply about things and most people aren't seeing that, that we're in a decaying uh, uh, empire and the things that happen in a decaying empire <laughs> are not good. You know, it, 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 it's not just like, Oh, Oh, it's just going to decay and then it'll become something else. No, there is a period of transformation that is always very painful. Hold on. Uh, let me add an extra clarification. Mm-hmm. So um, in Russia, they were lucky because the Bolsheviks had spent 20 years, uh, 20 years just uh, building up the infrastructure. And so when, when World War I happened, they were able to take advantage of it and build the Soviet Union. But in both Hungary and Germany, what happened is when it fell, the people were not able to be in power. It was whoever had the biggest army was went on in power. So then Hungary had like a quasi-fascist horsey uh, come into the power, and uh, Germany had Weimar Republic for a while, and things went worse from there. And so. Unfortunately, like what people don't realize is when the empire decays, unless you put in lots and lots and lots of work, you're not, you might, what may come after might be a lot worse. And I feel like a lot of people are kind of grokking this in, in a way like, uh, like there, there is a sense, at least on the left, that uh, that that Trump wasn't a solely a product of uh, the Republican Party. Uh, that that Trump was a product of this place we are in in the uh, context of decay, uh, a, a decaying economy and empire and so on. Uh, and that and that Biden wasn't a fix to that. Biden's kind of the same. He's just the he's just the uh, the financial services version rather than the fossil fuels version of that kind of uh, uh, liberalism, if you want to call it that. I, I, I mean, he, they're right. Uh, it's okay. But okay. They are absolutely right. I mean, he literally said nothing will fundamentally change. Right. Right. And, 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 you know, I was just going through my feed today and it's amazing how little anything is changing. Like even, even with regards to something as, uh, as urgent as, as COVID, he's urging people back to school and he's urging uh, businesses to open with no economic relief for people. And so it's just, it's the exact same thing that, that Trump was doing. So I'm kind of wondering do you have a historic touchstone? Is is there a place, the kinds of pressures that are being put on society right now with us today, is, is there a comparison, a, a good comparison that you use? Uh, I use Tsarist Russia and Spain before the Civil War. Um, those are the most, I, I mean, with some things like, that's why I love reading Lenin because uh, I'm trying to look at, I'm trying to find, I found an article he wrote like a few days ago 
which explains exactly what's wrong with liberalism, but I can't find it off the top of my head. But yeah, I think both the czarist Russia and Spain um, before it uh, before the uh, civil war is very similar um, in a lot of the different ways. Um, so there's the uh, let's see. What I remember is that I literally took an article Lenin wrote about czarist Russia. And I literally had to change one word and it was applicable to America. Um, That's amazing. So this is Lenin being sarcastic. Um, In 1905, uh, the czar kind of capitulated and gave people like a little bit like a fake Duma. And um, so because of the laws, the only kind of leftish party was the cadet party, which is the constitutional democratic party. Um, And let me uh, read what they say, but what he says, but the whole state Duma, that is to say the vast majority of politicians, that is to say the whole people, as in he puts it in quotation marks, is in favor of a Duba cabinet. We must choose between the existing evil and a very small rectification of it, because the largest number of those who are in in general satisfied with the existing evil are in favor of this very small rectification. And by achieving the small thing, we shall facilitate our struggle for the big thing. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, you don't even have to change the party's name. I know. Incremental change for catastrophic problems. There you go. Yeah. Um, and he, he mocked this up of 1906 or 1905. Um, and we don't have to change. And so that shows you that we literally, uh, it is systematic. And there is a reason. What people do not understand is how capitalism developed. Mm-hmm. So um, in future there was a large urban, uh, I don't know, merchant class who like did a lot of like uh, artisan stuff. Like they, the potter would sell pottery and the weaver would sell cloth and things like that. Guild work. They were a little, mm-hmm. yeah. And what capitalism did was basically it automated a lot of those. So what one weaver could do in one hour, the, uh, the, whatever the gin or the Jenny um, did in, in one minute, like Mm -hmm. it was, it could do the job of a hundred weavers in a single day. And so um, what happens is that now in most of these empires, the person who gets permission to build a factory is somebody related to the king, somebody the king likes, some favor. So he, so then what happens is that first they're going to build the factory. And then they're going to uh, put all these artisans out of business. And then the next thing is that the factory may need lots of water. So then uh, the king is going to just mow down whatever was in that place. And they'll put the factory right next to the river where it can dump pollutants and it'll go down. 
And then because now a lot of these artisans are just gone, like hungry, they're willing to work for long hours for small wages. And then suddenly what happens is that somebody who's also somehow related to the king gets a concession to build really bad slum housing for them right near the factory. And then so you have these little, and actually um, Frederick Engels writes about these details of like how Manchester converted in, in just says 50 years, the population increased by tenfold. And, there, and, it, it, and the river was like polluted because they kept on d- dumping. And the, the housing was cramped, disease-ridden. Um, and all of this is organized based on what makes this idiot who's related to the king most amount of profit. Oh, let's not forget, because um, so so as the weaving, like as the gin kept, uh, kept on like putting more and more spinners out of the business, they kept on needing more and more cotton in order to be able to keep the factory running. And so that actually increased, I, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but the American slave trade, that is a direct response to England needing more cotton and, because they had factories. Um, and then uh, they could like just dump everything, like in India, they just dumped everything and put Indians out of business and then they hiked the price up. Wow. Um, so what people don't realize is that everything in our society is literally built on what what makes the factory owners the most profit. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, and, and you don't even, and no one thinks about that because we don't actually understand how things were a thousand, a hundred years ago or 50 years ago or 70 years ago or 200 years ago. And um, so I think that what people need is a, a way to, in America, the people are the most propagandized in the world. So they need a way to see through the, for lack of a better word, the BS. Mm-hmm. And B, they need to learn how to do a strong, uh, logical, mathematical, quantitative, I don't know, analysis. And that is why Karl Marx called it scientific socialism, because of how data oriented it is and how um, they, how they kind of look beyond what appears to them. So the main thing that one needs to understand is that rich people like just need to justify their existence. They're like, they don't actually have any problems to solve because usually most of their problems can be solved with buying something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, and so they have a, a way to justify, they, they, they have to justify why they deserve to exist. Um, and so a lot of the ideology that we are filled, like the, a lot of the views of the ways in which we look at the world is, um, in a way, uh, in a way it's like not, um, not even, uh, it's like what rich people do everything. And I mean, 
uh, every, rich people do to justify their existence. And I, I keep thinking about a horror movie as as you're talking about this, like like capitalism and the factory is like this big beast that demands to be fed, and everything is is being shoved into its giant maw. You know, and and here's the here's society over here. And like, we're next, we're what's being fed into that machine rather than society uh, uh, serving people and, you know, creating, you know, a, a, a life that that's worth living for its inhabitants. All we are is is just raw materials to get shoved into the into the machine. I mean, yes, uh, for lack of a better word, that's what we are. We're, uh, and I mean, um, uh, like I said, uh, that's exactly what we are. Um, And I don't know what to say other than, yeah. (laughs) Well, and when I hear people say, like, and I love when when I see people online and and on social media say, um, uh, I wish you'd read more theory. I, I wish people would read more theory. I wish people would be more familiar with theory. I feel like that's, that's the, the, the big kernel right there is, you know, how do we get people to think more cricket, critically? How do we get people to see that this is the systemization? That this is what we're actually living in. And, and, and I know, you, you know, like, like, uh, uh, like I listen to, to Struggle Session, which is uh, the uh, Leslie, Leslie, Leslie's thing. And Jack. Yes. Oh, my God. And, you know, they bring this wonderful uh, perspective to pop culture. So they they can get at some yeah. of these issues by talking about, you know, like Vampires. Mandy, you know, like, like you know, pop movies and, and stuff like that. And or vampires. <laughs> or vampires. Vampires are a great example. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that, that where a lot of people live um, isn't in theory. A lot of people, you know, most, most people live in pop culture rather than in, in theory land. I mean, I'm not saying pop culture is even that wrong. Uh, it's just that, okay, um, the best analogy I'm going to make is like, do you remember in the old, the 1990s movie called The Matrix? Oh, yeah. Okay. Most Americans are in the matrix. Uh, the matrix is different than the real world. So you need to, I guess, wake up from the matrix, <laughs> disconnect from the <laughs> matrix. Uh, that's the best analogy I can, like, to explain how, like, how wrong of a view of, not wrong, but how bourgeoisie view of the world we have um, is, is pretty hard to, like, fathom. It's hard is people don't realize that, you know, the the brainwashed, mindless population in like 1984. That's you, buddy. Mm-hmm. No country is this um, propagandized, and like, there's so much indie culture that's been destroyed or changed to capitalism for capitalist propaganda. That everywhere you go, you're basically learning a version of the lie, and there, I can't say it, I'm. It's a. It, it feels like it's a psyop on the population. Basically. Yes. Oh my gosh! All of that, a hundred percent. And uh, it, you know, like, uh, 
such a, a even even people who are trying, and, and there are people out there who are trying. There's 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 a lot of people who listen to Michael Brooks, and there's a lot of people who have attached themselves to certain YouTube. The philosophers <laughs> <laughs> they, that rhyme with Crouch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and and they're young and I and I feel like they're trying, but but you know, they're not quite they're not quite there yet. And um and, and I when think the- that that, that instead of instead of getting better at at being you know comrades or whatever, they're getting really good at attacking other people. You know, like, <laughs> essentially, they're getting really good at being dicks online. Oh well, it's okay to be a dick. Lennon was the biggest dick, and he's funny. Um, it's just who you're. Uh, you just need to have the proper analysis while you're being a dick. Um, so. What I think is with that YouTuber, it's the blind leading the blind, and everyone's going to fall into a ditch. Ah, mm-hmm. I like and that. And I, I mean, there's also, there's like so many levels. Like, I don't even know where to begin to like, uh, I don't know where to begin. Um, uh, it's like, uh, like, like if, if I were to start explaining, like, how our newspaper, in, like how, okay, maybe this is a good example. In the 1920s, every union had its own newspaper. No, sorry, in the 1930s, every union had its own newspaper and its own radio station. And of course, with deregulation, they all got bought out and destroyed. And now um, none of them have that. And there's a big, big difference between learning about a strike from a union and learning about the strike New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have what, we, we don't even have the consciousness that people had in 1874 in America because there is no, uh, what, well, okay, so there's a fundamental d- difference. I, I mean, anyone who, even like um, Chomsky, everyone, I hope everyone's kind of, I don't know, manufacturing consent, whatever. Um, even Chomsky mentions this. Um, basically, uh, the media is there to uphold the system. And if you don't, if you're like getting too, uh, too, too excited with your reporting, you're just going to get fired. And, uh, th- and that filters itself to the point where we have Chuck Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, and MSNBC. And so, So if you know what to look for and how to understand them, you can get news. But for the average person, they're just twisting your head around. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a really good, that's, that's a really good way of, uh, of saying it. You're um, now, now, now I just want to write short stories where like, uh, they're all, you know, horror, but are, um, anti-capitalist horror uh oh no no you go right ahead um and maybe we can discuss a bigger principle with that that might work well you know it's it it's as if it's as if uh if you read your if you get your news about the strike from the new york times or from chuck todd you are it's the monster telling you from their perspective 
you know, how bad and awful the, uh, the uprising against them was, you know, instead of it okay. being from your own perspective, you know, like, like we're alienated from ourselves. We aren't even, we aren't even allowed to, to, to see the world through our own eyes. We see the world through the eyes of brands and the eyes of um, uh, rich people. Yes. And that's why um, you, we, most of us can even do even the most basics. Uh, I mean, I, I have friends uh, I, I, like um, a while back, a while back while they're trying to do the coup in Belarus, I kind of connected with the, this, like a lot of these Belarusian lefties to, with like, uh, uh, and to them, like they cannot understand how on earth Biden can do the 2000 to 1400 without there being like, everything being destroyed. (laughs) Um, So what I noticed is that because of the, because of like the past 60, 70 years of pure, for lack of a, I'm just going to call it the fascist propaganda, we have, people don't know how to help themselves. People don't, like obviously the school's not going to teach you how to fight for your rights. And no one's been uh, trained in that. But lucky for us, people who did know successfully fight for their rights, mostly like the Bolsheviks and the, and Karl Marx and Engels, they just like have written a lot of stuff about actual problems they've solved and uh, they faced and they've solved. And so we can learn from them because it's a lot of the theory is just a how-to manual. So tell, tell listeners, what, if somebody wanted to pick up uh, the, uh, you know, like, like baby's first uh, book of theory, you know, like where, where, where would you ask people to start? Where, where would you say a good place to start is? Okay. Um, this is funny. Um, most people won't say this, but there's a really funny article written by Lenin called in memory of Count Hayden. Um, it's like an obscure piece, but the reason why I love it is because once you change Count Hayden to John McCain, it is exactly how, it's like an entire critique of our society. And everyone, that was Isha Krishna Swarmi, and we have part two of this uh, discussion coming at you next week. But I want to leave this here for now because I want to land on the last thing that uh, she said here. And that is, uh, you know, go and have a look at this article in memory of Count Hayden. Uh, It was uh, written by Lennon. And as you're reading it, remember what she said, switch out John McCain for Count Hayden. And, uh, you know, so that will kind of contextualize it for uh, for Americans. So that's down in the show notes. And uh, we will be right back with uh, yet more of Progressive News Network. And we have Janine Maloff with the Justice Report. And this week, we are uh, continuing on part two uh, or more uh, of the uh, Not Dying for Wall Street 
series. And so I'm really excited about this. Uh, You're talking about vaccines this week, right, Janine? Yes, vaccines, specifically COVID, COVID vaccines and uh, COVID medicine. So I'm just going to dive right into it. And I'm just going to warn everybody. We know we've been lied to a lot. And just when you thought you couldn't be lied to more, well, we were. Um, The public's been led to believe there's nothing we can do about uh, patent monopolies that slow down the supply of vaccine during pandemic as well as uh, affordable medicine. Fact is, that's not true. So I'm gonna get on with it. So this is dealing with what we call the need for a people's vaccine. And we're talking about, uh, we're building on some of the work by CIFR economist Dean Baker, who's written extensively about either basically busting patent monopolies on pharmaceutical items, especially ones that have been uh, have built on publicly funded research. Uh, you know, a lot of people, just real quickly now, they, they are leery about the COVID vaccines because they say they were, they were created so quickly, couldn't possibly be right. The fact is they weren't created quickly. The vaccines were the tail end of decades of research into similar types uh, viruses. And these were all funded by, built on research funded by the National Institute of Health in this country, which is publicly funded. So nothing was created quickly. That's just not true. So that's lie number one. But right now we're living in an era of what other people have dubbed medical apartheid. And that is the perfect way to describe it. The COVID pandemic has brought to public attention the depth the degradation of this medical injustice, this medical apartheid, which is fueled by predatory capitalism and with emphasis on the predatory aspect. Look, I don't have a problem with reasonable capitalism as long as they play by the rules. Predatory capitalism is something else altogether. So as Brooke said, this is a continuation of our not dying for Wall Street series. There's so much documentation that it can't be presented in one show. So this is going to be divided into segments. Part one, this is the domestic, here in this country, corporate chokehold. Um, We really need to freeze or revoke patent monopolies during a pandemic. This is the moral argument. But the legal reality, and we need to do this because once we get rid of patent monopolies, or at least freeze them temporarily, and then do open sharing of information, whether it is the recipes for the vaccine, or the technical know-how, we could be, as I said before, producing vaccine in every state of the union have more than enough to go around. People don't have to be dying from lack of medical care. It's not true. The legal reality, we've been led to believe that, well, these patent monopolies, you know, they're sacred, right? They came down from the Lord above. No, they didn't. They came from our U.S. government. And the reality is that the U.S. government has always had the power to freeze or revoke patent monopolies to serve the public interest. And this pandemic certainly fits the bill. And this goes all the way back to the founders, including Benjamin Franklin, who created the patent office. So to borrow a phrase, you know, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. Yes, Virginia, the members of Congress, along with a string of presidents of both parties, have been lying to all of us regarding these patent monopolies, especially at Big Pharma. Next week, we'll talk about the international chokehold. So 
Just this past week, we have a baby step regarding COVID vaccine from the Biden administration. He announced, uh, you know, President Biden announced that there was going to be a, uh, basically a, a partnership between Johnson and Johnson and Merck so that they can produce more vaccine. But that's not enough. It doesn't address the real problem of medical apartheid, even during a worldwide pandemic. So um, Common Dreams published a piece by Kenny Stansel, uh, and that's what I'm quoting from here. And it also quotes a, um, a several people. So anyway, I'll get right into it. So you know, the Bi- President Biden brokered a deal, deal. I'm sorry, where pharmaceutical giant Merck will use their excess manufacturing capacity to produce the COVID vaccine of their competitor, Johnson & Johnson. Now, public health advocates said that, you know, yeah, the partnership is welcome, but these same public health advocates have also very loudly said, you won't hear it in mainstream media though, that global vaccine supplies could be significantly increased if we would just either revoke deny or at least freeze patent monopolies and the technology controlled by big pharma was shared worldwide. The vaccine recipes, as well as the technology, the technological equipment needed to act, go into production. So Nick Dearden, who is with Global Justice Now, was quoted as saying, quote, factories across the world are lying idle when they could be producing hundreds of millions of vaccines this year but they can't because Big Pharma is refusing to share the know-how. And that is very true. Um, so this agreement between Jay Johnson and Johnson and Merck, well, you know, it helps the issue. The issue is the patent monopoly in an age of a pandemic. Uh, you, can, you know, basically revoke the patent monopoly and we can go into full production. So advocates for this broader access and also the same advocates demanding an end to corporate control of uh, pandemic medicines and vaccines, uh, both here domestically in the US and worldwide are saying the deal is also very revealing. So Margarita Jorge is the the campaign director at Lower Drug Prices Now and was quoted as saying, quote, this partnership with Merck and J&J lays bare what we've known all along There is excess manufacturing capacity in the U.S. and around the world for manufacturing life-saving vaccines. But instead of doing everything we can get, we can we can to get these vaccines developed using taxpayer dollars into people's arms as quickly as possible, our elected leaders are choosing to allow a few big pharma companies to maintain their monopoly control over these drugs in order to maximize their profits. Jorge went on to say, "Quote." The Trump administration and Congress could have prevented the problem in the first place by refusing to grant exclusive patents for COVID medicines developed with taxpayer money. I'm going to repeat that. Jorge, with lower drug prices now, said, quote, the Trump administration and Congress could have prevented the problem in the first place by refusing to grant exclusive patents for COVID medicines developed with taxpayer money. And Jorge went on to say, but President Biden can still scale up production to meet global demand by using existing authority. And that last comment is very important. It goes into the legal argument. So that last part, Biden could use existing legal authority 
to deal with this problem more effectively is what's been left out of the mainstream corporate uh, corporate ex explanation, including from Dr. Fauci and Dr. Gottlieb and the rest. Okay, and and they should hang their heads in shame for withholding this information. See. These medicines and vaccines were not, these big pharma would have you believe that somehow they came up with something unique. Well, they didn't because research is not, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's always built on something that came before. And big pharma received the use of decades of taxpayer funded research. And then they tweaked it. And they've never paid it back. So Jorge went on to say that this, this kind of goes with progressives' demands that Biden invest in the ramping up of global manufacturing capacity and stop derailing the demand for popular knowledge sharing. That's supported by more than 100 countries. Knowledge sharing, both of vaccine and medicine recipes and the tech know-how to produce it? That would make it possible we could get vaccine out to every corner of the globe and get ahead of this. But like Trump, Biden has continued to block uh, the countries that are in the lead of pushing for this, namely India and South Africa. They're, India and South Africa are pushing for an emergency waiver of the World Trade Organization's agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, those TRIPS. See, it's the WTO's TRIPS agreements that make this even worse worldwide, because that TRIPS agreement mandates, demands the enforcement of patent protections, and that allows Big Pharma to monopolize and control scientific tech and knowledge, even though these are developed on publicly funded research. So Nick Dearden, again, Director of Global Justice Now, you know, also said that, quote, it couldn't be clearer that the big pharma patent model is failing us, failing to provide the medicines we need fairly or in sufficient supply. Only this morning we learned that factories across the world are lying idle when they could be producing hundreds of millions of vaccines this year but they can't because Big Pharma is refusing to share the know-how. Now, the Associated Press reported that factory owners from three different continents could begin producing COVID, vac COVID vaccines, like immediately, on very short notice, if they had the blueprints. In other words, the recipes and the tech assistance in order to do it. Okay? But... According to um, the AP story, that knowledge, quote, that knowledge belongs to the large pharmaceutical companies who have produced the first three vaccines authorized by countries, including Britain, the EU, and the U.S. That's Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca. The factories are all still awaiting responses, end quote. The AP story also told us that if the blueprints, you know, for the vaccine recipes and the tech know-how to produce, if they were shared, quote, then immediately overnight, every continent would have do dozens of companies who would be able to produce these vaccines. And that came from, that was, that came from the AP story. And the quote was from uh, Abdul Muktadir, 
who has an inceptive plant in Bangladesh making vaccines against hepatitis, flu, meningitis, rabies, tetanus, and measles. Okay, so once again, this doesn't have to be this way. Um, Peter Maibardu from Public Citizen also went on to say um, that it's good these two companies work together. It'd be even better if the technology were shared with qualified manufacturers around the world to produce as much as possible to protect people worldwide now and in the future. Okay, This technology, quote, should not be the property of these giant corporations. They should not have the final say on who produces these life-saving vaccines and on what terms, nor should they decide, in effect, what order people are vaccinated in, end quote. Nick Dearden uh, also said, quote, most countries in the global south are demanding patents be overridden. It's really obscene that these countries that have already bought the majority of vaccines available this year are saying, no, no, that's not necessary. The system works just fine. Dearden went on to say, quote, in fact, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a perfect candidate to be a people's vaccine. It promises to work well across the world. It's one shot, and it was developed with huge amounts of public funding. That means it belongs to all of us, end quote. Uh, Dearden went on to say, quote, this research should never have been privatized. Biden could make a real difference here by dropping U.S. opposition to the patent waiver proposal of the WTO and by unilaterally overriding patents on the J&J &J medicine and declaring it a people's vaccine, vac I'm sorry, people's vaccine, end quote. So this is what we're dealing with. Now we get to the legal part. It's going to take a little longer today. Okay. Um, Brooke Baker is a law professor at Northeastern University. Baker is also a senior policy analyst at a group called Health Gap. Baker uh, was quoted last week when asked by a reporter about the impact of temporarily suspending the, w the World Trade Organization's intellectual property rules on patent holders and how that would affect their profit margins. Um, and Baker responded, the TRIPS waiver doesn't mean that Big Pharma is, hasn't, it hasn't been well compensated and won't be. Baker added, quote, we should recognize that Pfizer and Moderna are already poised to earn billions this year after receiving billions in public subsidies, end quote. South African diplomat Mustakim Degamba um, who was actually involved in the World Trade Organization discussions, told the Associated Press that, quote, people are literally dying because we cannot agree on intellectual property rights, end quote. So, and again, um, Jorge was quoted as saying, and this is a really important quote, to, quote, to end the greatest public health crisis of our lifetime, our elected leaders must choose to prioritize the health and economic well-being of people over big pharma's profits, end quote. And a lot of this was also, there's another article, and it was um, actually published in Common Dreams, but also in The Guardian. Dr. Tedros, who is the Director General um, of the World Health Organization, published an op-ed in The Guardian. And we're, Dr. Tedros is saying, we need, quote, we need to be on a war footing. Uh, it's time to end vaccine monopolies, end quote, because people are just dying. He says, pull out all the stops. All right. Um, 
he you know said that it's it's a crime that the vast majority of some 225 million vaccines have quote been in a handful of rich and vaccine producing countries while most low and middle income com- countries must wait watch and wait such a me first approach is ultimately self defeating and dr tedros went on to say and this is really a critical point quote as long as the virus is spreading anywhere it has more opportunities to mutate and potentially undermine the, effic- the efficacy of vaccines everywhere, we could end up back at square one. And he's very right. Well, we have, we have to do a lot of things. We have to revoke these patent monopolies, dose sharing, tech transfer, voluntary licensing, um, flexibility and trade regulations. They exist for emergencies. The global pandemic, I say, meets that, that description. And Tedros gave these comments. They were welcomed by Oxfam International, which is also a member of the People's Vaccine Alliance. There were protests outside the WTO headquarters in Geneva, including Doctors Without Borders. Uh, they displayed a banner reading, quote, no COVID monopolies, wealthy countries stop blocking trips waiver. So we're going to go on ahead. So how do Big Pharma, and I'm just going to call them out, both parties, the political whores in D.C. keep getting away with this immoral and actually illegal medical apartheid. Well, first, there's a legal legislative argument. And as it turns out, Congress has had the ability and a series of presidents as well to freeze pharma patents in an emergency such as COVID. And the power was granted 40 years ago, but it's never been used. The damning facts regarding how public money, which funded free research for Big Pharma, was never paid back. So Alexander Zeitschik wrote in the New Republic just this past August, and it was a piece titled, How to Break a Big Pharma Monopoly on a COVID-19 Vaccine. Okay. So we know now that this piece was written at the end of August. And Zeitschik speaks about how in mid-July, the mainstream read corporate media was all in a frenzy about a story about alleged state-backed Russian hackers that they were poking around to try and steal vaccine trade secrets of U.S., Canadian, and British drug companies. And everybody was in a big lather that this might be, you know, a national security issue. Now, keep in mind, if it was true, these Russian hackers weren't suited According to the article, they weren't searching for a doomsday bioweapon because, you know, we've got COVID. Um, But they were looking for some sort of antidote, all right? But once again, these intelligence sources, they just kept talking about this and ignoring the elephant in the room, which is patents that basically keep this medical apartheid state going. Um, Including the New York Times, okay? Paul Chichester, Director of Operations for Britain's National Cybersecurity Center, um, said, quote, told the New York Times, quote, we condemn these despicable attacks against those doing vital work to combat the coronavirus pandemic. Okay, but that story just distracted everybody from the real issue, which is why are rich nations allowing publicly funded COVID-19 research 
and this is a direct quote, to be treated as objects of corporate secrecy and control in the first, in the first place. Why doesn't everyone have access to the science as a global public good? End quote. Good question. So on August 4th, there were basically attorney generals from 34 states in the U.S., and they published a letter, okay? And this, in this letter, they accused Gilead Sciences of abusing their monopoly on remdesivir, which is, as of August, the only approved antiviral COVID-19 treatment. We have some others now, but this was August of 2020. And to quote these, these attorney generals, quote, Gilead has not established a reasonable price nor has it met the health and safety needs of the public given the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, that was in the end quote, that was in the letter. Signatories included Xavier Becerra and Louisiana Republican Jeff Landry. So Democrats and Republicans. And in this letter, these 34 attorneys general cited the federal government's role in helping to develop remdesivir, okay? And because it was, again, developed with publicly funded research. And the AGs, 34 of them, urged federal health officials, that would have included Dr. Fauci, to, quote, use the regulatory authority written into the 1980 Patent and Trademark Law Amendments Act, better known as Bayh-Dole. Oh, 1980. So apparently... This Patent and Trademark Law Amendments Act, or we're going to call it by Dole right now, has various provisions, among which the law has conditions. They, they cited some conditions regarding property rights on research and related inventions that basically were built in part or totally by publicly funded research. And because they benefited from publicly funded research. It allows the government to quote, march in, that's their term, on those rights for the public's interest. And these multiple state AGs were right. Now keep in mind, this 40 year old law has never been used, never. That's something right there. It's been there, we could have used it, we could have used it during the height of the AIDS crisis to make those drugs affordable, but we didn't. Democrats or Republicans alike. In fact, even prominent progressives, they're pushing Medicare for all, but not a single one's talking about this. And that includes AOC, Bernie, all of them. I love them, but I'm just telling the truth. So let's get further into this. The attorney generals pointed out the fact that they, they flipped the, the, the vaccine espionage story in its head, okay? It's basically saying that when a medicine or a technology, whatever, is built in part or in total on publicly funded research, even if they have a patent monopoly, yes, the government can come in and freeze it for the public good, especially in an emergency. And this qualifies as an emergency. This, isn't, this has been accepted law for 40 years. So why weren't all these legal experts on CNN 
and other groups. Why weren't they speaking about it, considering most of them are attorneys? If I can find it researching on my little laptop, why can't these Congress people and senators with entire staffs of attorneys, why couldn't they find it? Well, they didn't want to. So here's what happened, okay? When Remdesivir came out, again, it benefited from public, publicly funded research. They priced their drug eventually at $520 a single vial. That's about 50 times the cost of manufacture. So the, these 34 U.S. Attorney Generals, 34 states, Democrats and Republicans alike, they were correct to insist on invoking the government's duty to push the Bayh-Dole patent override button. Okay? So again, you don't hear anything about it, but a few articles here and there. And they want to break Gilead's remdesivir monopoly by licensing what they call off-patent manufacture. In other words, we're going to use the recipe, we're going to create it, you're not going to have a monopoly anymore, not for a while. To quote from the article, by spotlighting the bro- well, no, actually, this is mine. By spotlighting the broken intersection of patent law and federal science policy, these AGs have pointed out the worst cause of this medical apartheid and the utter failure of the mainstream corporate media, the health officials like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Gottlieb, and a series of presidents, both parties and Congress, both parties, to let the American people know. Okay? The fact is, this was part of, there was initiative from the World Health Organization, and they launched it in May. It was a solidarity call to action on top of the AG's action. And it was to make vaccine research and technology available to an open science and open license basis, because this is an emergency. That would mean, it doesn't just mean that they create generics. People understand generics are close to the original drug, but they can be as much as 20% less effective. Now, open science and open license basis means that those recipes for the real deal will be openly shared. Okay? South Africa is leading that charge. So let's move on ahead. Told you there's a lot here. So the federal government's overall contribution to developing these drugs, whether it's the COVID vaccine or remdesivir, it's not a secret. It's well known. The 34 attorney generals I spoke about also mentioned the 75 million in government grants that pushed the the inception of remdesivir as a COVID-19 treatment. And those grants were enough to justify action to freeze the patent under Bayh-Dole. But those grants are just a fraction of the full subsidy over time. Okay? In fact, recent research has basically, according to this quote, challenged the accounting metrics that have been traditionally used to measure the contribution of governmental monies to government-funded science. 
So the Bentley University Center for Integration of Science and Industry published a study in 2020. And they examined the development process for drugs, and they used remdesivir as their case study. And they found that these breakthrough inventions, like the COVID vaccine, they don't happen suddenly. This didn't happen quickly. It was built on this incredibly large body of what they call foundational research that had to reach what they called a maturity threshold. So for research to really reach that maturity threshold to justify, say, a new drug, that process takes 30 years or more. So none of these vaccines, COVID drugs, they did not happen overnight. That is not true. Okay? And billions were spent. So the lead author of the story, named Fred Ledley, was quoted as saying, quote, it is a fundamental flaw in our system that the critical role played by government funding in establishing the scientific and technological foundation for the products developed the industry goes ignored. There is currently no recognition of the decades, decades of basic foundational research that make something like remdesivir and other discoveries possible. Decades. Uh, excuse me, that included the production of antiviral drugs for HIV, hepatitis, and yes, COVID. And we went on to say that he, we really need mechanisms that will make sure that we have a more equitable distribution of the value generated by this pub, these publicly funded research dollars. And then we need to, quote, ensure that they are properly rewarded in public value. So to quote him, quote, we need mechanisms to ensure a more equitable distribution of the value created by these investments, a.k.a. public dollars, and ensure they are appropriately rewarded in public value, end quote. And so Leslie's team did a couple earlier studies. They used a similar methodology. And what they found was that all new drugs approved by the FDA between 2010 and 2019, quote, rested on edifice of research built with 200 billion in government money, end quote. So when you hear people say, I don't want to take the COVID vaccines because they were developed so quickly. No, they weren't. They were built on decades of research funded on the public dollar. What Big Pharma added was basically some dollars for application, but they didn't do the basic research. They never did. Um, and this has been going on. So in 2019, a team led by Lee Fleming of UC Berkeley found that the number of patents that really rely on public science, publicly funded science, has exploded between 2008 and 2017. Corporate patents that grew out of federal research are almost, quote, more important than those that didn't as measured by future citations. The authors concluded, quote, from a societal viewpoint, the discoveries from research are best distributed widely through the economy rather than being kept in a single firm, end quote. And he also pointed out that really medical science, like really any type of, of academic research, it doesn't happen suddenly, boom, this person discovered this. Medical research is incremental and cumulative. It, it basically, basically builds over time. 
and drug and vaccine breakthroughs, that requires multi-decades, multiple decades of investment and research. So no, the COVID vaccines did not suddenly happen. Okay, so we're gonna go a little further here. The fact is our government has always had the power to freeze these patent monopolies in the case of an emergency. And the real question is, are we going to demand the political power and the will to exercise this, these rights? So what's the history of medical patent monopolies, especially ones that are heavily subsidized by public scientific research? Well, for a long time in our country's history, they were considered profoundly un-American, all right? That was until the middle decades of the last century. See, after the, after the Second World War, um, there was a lot of breakthroughs in vaccines and medicines. And basically, the understanding of science was that the patent policy was supposed to put, was supposed to prioritize, put public need over any ownership rights of a single, and they have it in quotes, inventing person or institution. Again, this is multi-decade. So that no real medical or scientific breakthrough happens suddenly or just from the efforts of one person or one company. It's not how it works. And that's why the findings of Ledley and Fleming are important. So the fastest way to break the chokehold of patents is to reduce and reduce the power of big pharma has always been there. And it's in the public interest language in U.S. law and patent code. Okay, so the history of patent mon monopolies of pharma versus the public good, okay? And this all has to deal with inventions that were aided, even in part, by public money. It also pushes the argument for a public option in pharmaceuticals. So the half century leading up to the New Deal, populists and progressives were pushing this multi-front war against what this author is called, quote, the only legalized form of monopoly, the patent, end quote. And FDR came in and he chose a man named Thurman Arnold to head the antitrust division in the Department of Justice. And this was really supposed to push competition, not planning. So the antitrust head of DOJ, Thurman Arnold's viewpoint was very clear, okay? Um, he basically, he's a classic New Dealer, okay? He had a very skeptical view that these inventions were created by one company or one person. And he talked about what is known as deficiencies of American patent law. And he quoted an economics graduate student named Alfred Kahn, who argued that the rise of the corporate research lab basically cut off the patent system from its original, quote, original constitutional mandate, which was to, quote, spur invention and produce widespread social benefits for the public good, okay? To quote, excuse me, um, from the business standpoint, the great research laboratories are patent factories. Their product often is nothing but a basis for threatening infringement suit and scaring off competitors, end quote. Now, you know what? All I can say is amen. And yet, 
once again, if I can find this information and I'm not an attorney, then why can't corporate media or all the attorneys in Congress? So the 1947 Justice Department report goes further and it counters that era's version of Big Pharma's standby argument, okay? Big Pharma has repeatedly said that unless you offer monopoly riches, these scientists won't do the science. It's not true. So the 1947 Justice Department argued that the consequences of patent monopolies, and I'm just I'm going to quote this once again because it's, it's worded very well. Quote, the, con the consequences of patent monopolies retarding technological progress, further entrenching concentrated economic power, flow from the anachronistic fallacy of the lone inventor. Quote, in order to look upon a single inventive contribution as patentable and exploitable, one must look upon each invention as an entity self-contained and distinct from all others, end quote. And this was, again, all written by Kahn. And again, this is usually not true. The history of invention over time has demonstrated the opposite, that there's this ever-evolving intersectional quality between various types of research and applications. So Kahn went on to argue the act of invention really more closely resembles that cooperative process that's kind of organically evolves, containing, quote, within itself the dynamic factors that make for constant cumulative movement, end quote. Okay? The individual does not construct new chains. He fills missing links, end quote. And it's true, exactly. Okay? So the Gilead scientist who patented GS5734, which is also the, another name for remdesivir, they, remdesivir was known for years. It was, that drug actually, as they said, languished, quote, in a company's offshore intellectual property vaults. For years, they didn't do anything with it because they didn't think they could market it. And this was on top of some 6,800 federally funded project years of research into RNA proteins and what they call analog nucleosides. Okay, so basically, until they, until Gilead thought they could market remdesivir, even though there was medical need, it languished. And it wasn't just built by them. That's another lie. So, you know, this is what it is. Um, this patent process, according to Khan, you know, was brought in under FDR basically said that antitrust, basically that there was a cleavage between desirable essence and predatory excrescence. Um, one again, the idea of predation, predatory behavior by big pharma, nobody's shocked, okay? So once again, you have corporate fiscal conservatives who were intent on stealing and it is stealing publicly funded discoveries through legal trickery and deceit. So you had a Hooverite coalition that was arguing for flexibility in patent monopolies. They didn't like what FDR brought in. Okay. And so there were the thing called the Kilgore hearings. Oops, I'm sorry. My computer's doing weird things tonight. Um, so once again, 
you have this, this situation in mind. These hearings happened 75 years ago, all right? And this was about whether or not patent monopoly would service the public and only be allowed periodically or whether it be, quote, flexibility. In other words, let Big Pharma take over. And Horace M. Gray, who is a dean at the University of Illinois, was quoted as saying, it is really quite unthinkable that the federal government should tax the citizens of this country to secure funds for scientific research on the ground that such research promotes the general good and then turn the results of such research over to some private corporation on an exclusive monopoly basis, end quote. Yes, that's it. The public is stuck with the tab twice and then often denied the product of big pharma. Gray worded this theft perfectly. He went on to say, quote, this amounts to public taxation for private privilege and violates one of the basic tenets of our democratic faith, end quote. I couldn't have said it better myself, okay? President Truman weighed in in 47. Um, there was a report in, again, Department of Justice warned that private monopolies on government-funded science would restrict access to those discoveries, and it would also, according to them, distort research and development agendas, which it did. There's more research done on, uh, for instance, drugs that might let people cut down on smoking than there is good cancer drugs. And they would incentivize pro pro profit over the public good. And that's what we're dealing with now. And unfortunately for us, Kilgore and the New Dealers lost. All right, so I'm getting back to it. So we still have the by Gore thing. There was a short-lived attempt by the Kennedy administration to tighten up access to that drug research, but then that culminated, quote, in the Reagan-era construction of a streamlined public-private tech transfer conveyor belt. Okay, the remaining legal issues. There were two main engines in order to help the taxpayer, by Dole and the Stevenson Wildler Widler Technology Innovation Act. They were both passed in 80. They were written with public interest triggers. The triggers were kind of vaguely defined, which means that holding the patent holder accountable is very difficult and it's time consuming and we don't have time during a pandemic. Then the Clinton administration stripped obligations from Stevenson Wildler, but Bidola remains intact. And so the public's understanding we can't push to enforce the law if we don't know it exists. And the mainstream corporate media failed us miserably on this account. Under Bayh-Dole, yes, we could freeze their patent monopoly in an emergency. The attorney generals were right. Now, they use remdesivir as their example. I'm using the, vac the COVID vaccine. So the key argument of the Constitution is that when it talks about government taking, the Constitution, the takings clause has power over the intellectual property clause because patent rights were established to serve the national interest, not the other way around. So to put it bluntly, we could use the Bayh-Dole Act at the very least to freeze the patent monopoly on COVID vaccines and force open research. This has been known for decades. That law is 40 years old. 
And that means both Democrats and Republicans, keep in mind, majority of members of Congress or attorneys, they know this. Their staffs are equipped with teams of attorneys as well. But they don't want to because Big Pharma is a big contributor. And when we say political contributions, we're talking legalized bribery. And people are suffering because of it. Now, this is part one. We're going to go into more next week on the international, but on the international uh, level. But I want people to understand it doesn't have to be this way. Okay. And again, Horace Gray described the situation monopoly patents for devices and pharmaceuticals built on publicly funded research very well. He said, quote, public taxation for private privilege violates one of the basic tenets of our democratic faith. And it does. And that's my report. All right, Janine, thank you so much. That is a a lot of information, but it tells the story from uh, the beginning to the end. So thank you so much for that. All right, folks, don't forget, Janine Moloff also hosts the Environmental Justice Report Thursday nights at 8 p.m. And uh, that's it for me. And we'll see you back here next week and doing it all over again. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.